you would uh, take out your Bibles and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There we will find our initial reading for this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, this morning we rejoice that we have the opportunity to gather together have your word before us, have your spirit at work, your people around us, and your promise that you will use your word, it will not return to you void. Father, we ask this morning as we contemplate different promises from your word, as we contemplate our own need our own existential needs that we have in our lives and our circumstances, maybe in our families or our health, maybe more broadly in our world, concerns that we have. I pray, Father, that we would bring those concerns, that we would acknowledge them for what they are, that we would bring them to you, and we would be informed and blessed and helped and encouraged by looking at your word today in considering these promises that you have made to your people. We trust that you are faithful. We pray that you would be faithful to bless us even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying Genesis the last uh, number of months, and as we've been going through the story of Abram, and uh, hearing about promises that God has made to him, we recognize that the promises God made to Abram were not small. They were enormous, and they were uh, of enormous consequence. And so uh, we've talked about much of uh, the story of Abraham has been the struggle for Abraham to believe God's promises. And sometimes we're amazed that Abraham is so trusting of God that he is able to believe in such uh, in such great ways, and other times we see uh, that not to be the case, that uh, rather he falls flat on his face and uh, doesn't believe God's promises. Well, the question that we're looking at today is not so much the promises to Abraham, not so much the life of Abraham, but really what are some of the promises that God has made to us that would be important for us to remember now? As we talked about God who keeps his promises, God who makes uh, enormous promises and, uh, and keeps his promises, well, that's, it's easy for that to become maybe just history. 
maybe just uh, the, the, his, the history of Abraham or the, the nation of Israel or something like that, or maybe some theological conception about God being faithful and God being our shepherd and, and whatnot. But we want to bring that right down to our lives. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me in this day and age? If you read the news, if you watch the news, you are struck by uh, trends of inflation, uh, the threat of war, and many places in our world where there is war. We're confronted with societal unrest in various places, in various degrees, for various reasons. Maybe uh, spiritually we think about those that we know who have apostatized. They named the name of Christ and now they don't. They have walked away and that concerns us deeply and, and is a problem for us. Maybe, maybe one of the areas where uh, we're challenged with is some, some personal opposition in our lives. Someone standing against us, someone coming against us. Or maybe the challenge for us is some personal failure, something in our own lives that stands against us, that comes against us. And so we're going to look today at various uh, promises that we find in Scripture, and, and uh, it would, it's hard to narrow it down which promises we're going to look at, which promises we're going to uh, talk about. We could go on and on and on in talking about the promises that God has made, and we could categorize them, and we could, we could uh, look at them systematically. But this morning, um, I've, I've chosen uh, what I think are some very relevant for our time promises regarding the challenges that we face, the challenges not just in our world, not even just in our culture, uh, but, but challenges in our own lives. And I've selected four that we're going to look at today. And as with any sermon, as with any sermon, the preacher is not able to make application in every specific life, in every specific way that it is to be made. I just can't do that. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to talk long enough, and you wouldn't be able to listen long enough. And I don't know what's going on in your life because most of the applications or uh, maybe many, many of the applications, if not most, in our lives are, are in areas where maybe we're not even conscious of those areas or maybe we don't talk about them. But we need God's word to, uh, to uh, drive home into those areas maybe of doubt or of frustration or of sin or of unbelief in some other way or whatever in our lives. And so our responsibility as, as those who uh, hear the word proclaimed, it's the same for me as it is for you, is that we hear God's word taught and then we wonder, okay, how does this apply to my life? What does this mean for me? And I can't answer that for you. I'll try a little bit. Um, I can't even give you all the answers that that uh, has for my life. But when we hear God's word proclaimed, we need to understand it, we need to to, to, to work to understand what God is saying and then say, okay, now what does this mean for me? What does this mean in my life? And so today as I work through these four different areas of promise, um, I trust that that's, uh, that's what we'll, the attitude we will have as we uh, cover just a few of God's promises from his word. The first uh, problem that arises that I want to address is, uh, has to do with the turbulent times that we live in. 
these financial times that we're going through, these difficult times. When we uh, lived in Russia from 1996 to 1997, we uh, lived there during the time of the Wild West of Russia. It was uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and before really Russia had kind of recovered. And so um, we very often saw when we would go to the market, because they had outdoor markets and uh, very interesting uh, situation there, but very often we would see people who had worked their entire lives under the Soviet system. And they were accruing, accumulating a pension that was going to be paid by the government. And that pension was accumulated based upon the ruble, the Soviet ruble. And it took about uh, one and a half rubles to make a dollar under the system that they were accruing their pension. Well, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. The economy collapsed shortly thereafter. And by the time we moved there in 1996, it took about 5,000 rubles to make a dollar. And so here you had these people, their income was fixed based upon one and a half rubles to the dollar. That's what they got paid. They were living in a world where the economy said it took 5,000 rubles to make a dollar. Can you imagine working all those years and saving all those years? And these people found themselves in utter poverty, that they were receiving their pension and it paid for nothing, and so they would buy cracked eggs uh, at the market because they were half price. They would buy a half a slice of bread for their day. Talk about give us this day our daily bread. That's what they could afford. Well, that's the, the situation. That's where the hyperinflation took them. That's the, the context that they uh, lived in, and we don't, we don't have that going on. We see inflation, but we don't see inflation like that. We don't see hyperinflation happening, but it raises the question for us, uh, for many of us, uh, we might begin to worry whether we can make ends meet. Can I make ends meet? If I, if I retired and my fixed income uh, started, you know, three, four years ago, and now I'm supposed to live out the remainder of my retirement on a fixed income with a dollar going the wrong direction, etc. So we, we have uh, questions, we have concerns, we have worries, and this isn't just related to economy and things like that. It's always a concern for Christians. Um, Will God uh, get us through? Will we be able to make ends meet? And so I want to look at a couple of God's promises to supply. That's point number one. God's promises to supply. Well, the first one, probably that should come to mind, one of the very first ones is a, a very famous psalm, one that gives us great encouragement, and that is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes on to describe how God, as a shepherd, takes care of his people and guides them through difficulty and through fear and through doubt and against their enemies and provides for their needs and blesses them and leads them the way of righteousness for his name's sake and on and on. But we need to think about that promise, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We talked about adoption in our Sunday school class. Not, not, not adoption on a human level, though we did talk about that, but primarily what it means to be adopted into God's family. That we get to be children of God because of Christ. And we talked about some of the benefits that come with that. This is one of those benefits. That we, having been brought into God's family by faith in Christ, as one of those who is His children, we now have His special care to provide for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God provides for his own. 
Now, we might usually take that to mean that he supplies for our spiritual needs, and that is the primary focus of Psalm 23, that he uh, provides for us in all these different ways against our enemies and doubts and fear of death and, and all these other kinds of things, but that, and that's certainly true, but it also goes beyond that. Think of Philippians 4.19. Turn there for a moment. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages today, so you're going to get your, your uh, sword drill time in today. Philippians uh, 4.19. God will supply even physical needs. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, anytime you go to understand a uh, verse by itself, you always have to read it in its context, study it in its context, and being, uh, see what's being said, what is being meant in that context. And frankly, this is one of the dangers of doing a sermon like this that just, that's topical where I'm going from passage to passage to passage, looking at a verse here and a verse there, is that it's easy to take a verse out of context because, well, it says these things, and if I, if I cut it out of its passage, out of its context, I can make it mean all kinds of things. I can make it walk on all fours, as R.C. Sproul used to say. So we want to make sure and pay attention to the context. Well, the context of Philippians is that, if you look at this paragraph starting in, uh, in ch- chapter 4 and verse 10, that Paul is rejoicing greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And then he goes on to talk about how he is a blessed man in that he's been able, he's learned how to live in any and every situation, whether he's, whether he's in poverty or whether he's dealing with plenty. In verse 14 he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He's talking about the giving of financial resources. He's talking about, uh, the, the, uh, he's trying to encourage the Philippians that, yes, you, you have decided to support financially. Praise God for that, and God will meet your needs. Don't worry, impoverished church that you've given too much and you won't be able to eat. God will meet your needs. He's trying to encourage them. Perhaps they were second-guessing. Perhaps they were thinking, yeah, we gave that one time to Paul, but man, things were tough financially, and I don't know that we can ever do that again. And he's encouraging them that God will meet your needs, even your physical needs. And so uh, we need to notice, though, that... That comes right after Paul had just said, and I, by the way, I've learned the secret of contentment, says Paul. I can live with plenty, and I can live with poverty. So he, he, though he's encouraging them, and God will meet your every need, yet he, he's kind of redefining what need means. Paul is not saying you're going to have a, uh, a sports car because God will meet all your needs, and that's what you need. He's not saying that you will have overabundance of, uh, of wealth uh, because that's what you need. He's saying, basically, I've, I've, I've relearned what the word need means. Sometimes that includes wealth. Sometimes that includes abundance uh, and great provision. And other times, I, I've struggled to have a place to sleep. I've had... I've had food to eat and not much more than that. I've had food for today. I had, to, I had to buy a half a slice of bread. 
but that was God's provision for me. And I've learned to live con contentedly in either one of those circumstances. So when he says, my God shall supply every need, we're not the ones who get to define what a need is. <laughs> I, I would like to define what need is because I would put it in big bold letters and I would have lots of subpoints of what meant uh, what I meant by the word need, right? And maybe, maybe you're not all that different from me, but, but here you have uh, Paul saying, God will supply your needs. It may require some fine-tuning of what need means, but God will meet your needs. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging. There's, a, there's, a, there's exhortation in there as well, but that is very encouraging that God would work to meet our needs. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, I remember when I first really ran across this verse, I don't know how many times I had read it, but it jumped out at me in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. If uh, you will pay attention to the, the alls and the everys in this verse, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's a lot of alls, and that's a lot of everys. And that uh, really stood out to me in a, in a time when um, I was uh, asked to lead in singing. I know, it was, it was tough times, okay, tough times. When I asked Brennan to, to lead in singing, and so I was up here, and I was with the youth and leading in singing, and I was shaking in my boots. I don't mind talking to you. I could talk to you two, three hours, as you well know. <laughs> Doesn't bother me at all. I can pray with you all. I can be in front of you all. And, and, and I can even be silly sometimes in front of you all. But singing, man, that just scares me to death, right? I'm happy to sing over there next to my wife. <laughs> I can just listen to her. And... But I, 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 was, I was memorizing this verse the very week that I was asked to, uh, to lead in singing in church. And I was like, no. No, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. You don't want me to do that, right? But God is able to make all grace abound to you. Is God able to make it so that Brennan can lead in singing and nobody cries? Is, is, is God able to, to pour out grace in such a way that I would have sufficiency to be able to stand up in front of you and lead in, in worship? Yes. Is, is God able to make, uh, make abound to me all grace so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, I could even do that? Yes. Now, that's a tiny and silly thing, right? That's, it's not scary to stand in front of you. It's not scary to sing in front of you. It's not, not that scary to sing in front of you, right? But God's grace is sufficient for even such a minor thing, even such a, such a silly thing. And it is sufficient for all things, not just the tiny insignificant ones, nor just the earth-shattering ones, but for all things, God is able to make all grace abound to you. In the discussion, again, we need to think about the context a little bit. The discussion that's going on in Corinthians is that uh, the Corinthians had pledged to give money to be sent to Judea 
to help the poor Christians there. It was in that context that Paul was encouraging them a little bit. He was encouraging them that um, God is able to meet your needs. God is able to help you even follow through on this financial commitment that you made for these poor Christians in Judea. God is able to help you with that. And so there's a point of application here as we come to the end of this first, uh, this first point about God uh, giving promises to supply. And the application is simple. Trust the Lord to supply your needs. Now, God uses our own thriftiness very often to supply our needs. He uses our own in, in industry to supply our needs. And so we have responsibility, and yes, we work hard, and we save, and we, we spend wisely, and we do all those things. Yes, yes, we do those things. And God is at work to supply our needs. And there are times when, no matter how thrifty you have been, no matter how industrious you have been, yet you find yourself in a place of poverty. And what happens in that time? What happened to the Christians in Judea who were as poor as church mice? Other Christians gave money to help them to meet their need. So very often, we are useful in meeting the needs of one another. Very often, we get to meet our own needs. We go to work. You know, we, we, we live lives that are, you know, fiscally responsible, etc., and we provide for our own needs. Yes, we do that. And there are times when that fails, and we have one another, and we can help one another. And so we should trust the Lord to supply our needs. And a second point of ap application on the other end of that, be generous. Be generous. And, and by the way, Parkside is a very generous church. I, I know of um, I have a position of privilege in, as an elder in the sense that I get to hear things that maybe most people don't about uh, people meeting other people's needs, generosity of the body taking care of the body. Praise God for that. And I want to I thank you for that and praise God for that. As I've benefited from it and I benefit from watching it happen. I praise God for the ways that he has worked. But be generous. Be aware that God very often uses us to meet one another's needs. So be generous when you see other Christians in need and trust the Lord when you are that Christian who is in need. And by the way, Christian in need, you may need to speak up. Don't let your pride uh, close your mouth so that you won't mention uh, a need, a legitimate need that you have. So God promises to supply the needs of his sheep, of his people. That's the first problem and the first promise that goes with that. There's, a, there's another problem that I want to look at, one that's on the mind of many Christians. And that is the problem of suffering. As the elders pray weekly for the congregation and the, the individuals in the congregation, we're very often aware that there seems to be a great deal of suffering in our circles of various kinds, emotional, physical, relational, financial, spiritual. We're aware of suffering, and, and none of us likes suffering. None of us looks forward to that time when we're going to suffer. We look back on the times when we have, and we really would rather not go through that again. But we've all experienced suffering to some degree, and we know that we will again. In fact, we're promised that we will have suffering to one degree or another as Christians. I think of Philippians 1.29, where Paul says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... So two things, well, granted, it's been, it's been a gift to you. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, that's the first gift... 
Our faith in Christ is a gift. But secondly, we should also suffer for his sake. That's another gift. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. He's saying that suffering is somehow a gift. It's a grant from God. And so we need to uh, look at the concept of suffering, biblically speaking. And we see, secondly, promises of suffering. We're going to look at one passage in particular, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, before this, I, I'm, I might forget to mention this later. I noticed that various of our passages we're looking at today are in 2 Corinthians. And this is not because I'm studying 2 Corinthians or, or that we're preaching through 2 Corinthians or anything like that. But there, there, is a, there is a consistency in here in the book of 2 Corinthians where we have these promises made and these declaration that God is faithful to keep his promises. It's a theme throughout 2 Corinthians. I didn't know it was there. No one, I, don't, I don't know that anyone's ever told me that. Maybe they have, and I, but I don't remember it. But studying through this, I see again and again, 2 Corinthians is about God makes promises that are important in your life, and he keeps those promises. And, by the way, there's another point of, uh, of, of application as the third point where, where uh, Paul has said, God has made promises and he keeps these promises. And, by the way, Paul says, we made promises, and we keep our promises. And, by the way, you've made promises, and you ought to keep your promises. Specifically, he's talking about giving funds to support that church in Judea, the, the poor Christians in Judea. He's reminding them, God is faithful, and you should be. And, and the apostles are faithful, and they do what they say, and they carry through, and you should too. That's a, that's a freebie. I just didn't want to forget that. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're looking at uh, verses 3, uh, starting at verse 3. And you will notice the word comfort occurs in here once or twice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And that's the, the, the densest um, section regarding comfort, I think, that's probably found in the Bible, at least where it's explicitly discussed. And, and uh, so I want to just work through very briefly here what he means by this and, and kind of uh, talk about the relationship here that Paul is, is, uh, is trying to give between suffering and comfort and God and the Christian. And so I just want to work through it momentarily here. God comforts his people in their affliction. God himself gives comfort to his people in their affliction. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. It's God who does that. God himself, he, he's not distant and cold. He's not like the, the, the deist God who started the world spinning and then kind of backs off and lets it go. 
He's, he's close to us. He cares for us. He has adopted us, and He cares for us as His adopted children. So God comforts His people in their affliction. And He does this so that we can use that same comfort that we receive to take to others. Just like financially, uh, the theme that's one of the financial themes in 2 Corinthians here is that God has provided abundantly Christians so that you can provide for other Christians. Likewise, God has provided comfort for you, Christian. But you are not the end user. It's not a cul-de-sac. It's not one way and you're the end. It's given to you for your good, but it's to be used also to comfort those around you. To pass on that same comfort, same comfort that you have received. So we can pass that comfort on to others. He says we do indeed share in Christ's sufferings, but we also share in his comforts. That in Christ we have this unique and special and intimate relationship with the Father like Jesus had. You ever wonder what Jesus' prayer life was like? You ever wonder uh, how, how Jesus uh, thought about the Father? What it, what it must have been like in, to, to, to view that, to see it happen, that when, when Jesus was praying and asking the Father the confidence that he had, because this is his Father, this is the Son of God talking to God the Father. And we, Christian, have been brought in as sons into a relationship where not only do we suffer with Christ, but we also share in his very special, directed, pointed, precious comforts to us. And Paul's affliction is meant to result in the comfort and the salvation of others. The suffering that Paul goes through, the hardship, the, the maligning of his character, the physical discomfort and sufferings that he goes through, it's meant to result in the comfort and salvation to other people because it's not just him. He's not the end user. It's to go beyond him to Christians around him. And I, I recognize this again and again in this passage, and it's a rebuke to me. I, I often ask for comfort from God. And then when I receive it, I thank God and I close my mouth. And I don't share it with you. I don't, I, don't, I don't take that comfort I've received and spread it around. It's not like there's a limited quantity of it. It's not like I'm going to spend it all up or something if I tell you about it, if I comfort you with the same thing. But I have a tendency to do that. I thank God for that comfort. I rejoice. I revel in that comfort. And I should take it to you as well. And we should do that with one another. It's one of the reasons God comforts us the way he does. Paul's comfort is to help others be comforted as, as they are enduring their own suffering. You've been comforted, praise God. You've received comfort from God. That's a wonderful and a glorious thing. And there will come a time when your brother, your sister in Christ will be suffering horribly. And you've got the comfort to take to them. You can minister to them. You have an abundance of this comfort and you know how effective it is. You know it's from God himself. It, 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 was, it was comforting to you, so take it to your neighbor and comfort them with it as well. Others suffer like we do, and others will be comforted like we are. 
In short, God himself comforts his children, and he uses his children to comfort one another. What a blessed thing that we experience by being here, by being in the body of Christ, by being in fellowship with one another, by, by, by being together at Parkside. We benefit from that comfort that has been poured out on others, and in a time when I need comfort, I don't just have to sit here and, and wait for God alone by himself to give me some unique comfort to me. He may do that. But I've got you, and I've got you, and I've got you who have gone through uh, suffering of your own and have been comforted, and you could be right there to comfort. And so I don't have to, to look expectantly as if, as if you know, God needs to give a new kind of comfort. We can share. So let's share. And what a, what a difficult thing it is when, when uh, Christians will not uh, connect themselves with a the local church. That's one of the things they miss out on. They miss out on the comfort that we can give one another. God himself comforts his children, and he uses us often to do that. Now, one reason for the suffering that you are experiencing, and there are lots of reasons, one reason for the suffering that you are experiencing is so you can take the comfort that you receive as you go through that, and you can pass it on in the future to other Christians who will need it. They will need to be comforted. They will be facing their own suffering. And so, I don't, I don't like to suffer any more than anybody else likes to suffer, but this helps me to think about it a little bit differently. If I think that the comfort I'm going to receive in this suffering will be useful to minister to other people as they will suffer and be in need of comforting. I can help give it to them. It gives a greater purpose to the suffering that I experience. It helps me be able to endure it knowing that I can later bless you because of the suffering that I've gone through. So the application here is take the comfort that you receive and give it to others. Another application is we might need to think differently about the suffering that we go through. Because if you're anything like me, you're probably just waving that off like, I just want to audit that thing. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to endure it. Just If I could go the non-suffering route through the Christian life, that would be best. If we do that, what, what comfort do we have to give those around us who suffer? So we might need to think differently about that. And by the way, there's something here in, in verse 4, just in passing, I want to comment on. Verse 4 says, who comforts us in all our affliction, all the affliction I go through, God comforts me, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the relationship between the all and the any there? I've, I've suffered certain things in my life. There are many things I have not suffered. Does that therefore mean I have no comfort to take to those who are suffering something I've not suffered? No. I have been comforted in all kinds of ways. And I can take that comfort and I can go to the person who's suffering something different than I have ever suffered. And I can still comfort them. I don't need to be... Uh, I don't need to be kind of sequestered, like, well, I don't know. I can't really deal with that. Uh, I've never gone through that, so I just don't have anything to say there. Well, I mean, we need to be gentle. 
We need to be tender, and we don't, we don't, we don't jump in, you know, with, uh, with trite sayings and whatnot when people are going through suffering we've not experienced, yet we have suffered. And we have comfort we can take there to give to that person in that situation that we've never gone through. Likewise, if you're on the receiving end of that, you're suffering from something, you're experiencing something that you know this person seeking to comfort you has never experienced before, okay. What, are you going to shut them out because they haven't experienced the same exact thing that you had? No, they need to be gentle, but you need to allow them to come and comfort you, though they have not experienced the exact same thing. Problem three. Many Christians struggle with whether they are genuinely saved. Maybe you feel like you aren't doing enough in the Christian life. Maybe you don't feel the same kinds of things that, that other more spiritual Christians uh, seem to feel all the time. Maybe you have some moral failure in your past that causes you to wonder whether God has even saved you. Well, this brings us to our third point of promises for salvation. Promises for salvation. We're going to look at Titus chapter 1. So if you would turn over there with me. A lot of people, whether it's uh, the way they're raised, um, some church background they have, or some, some theological influence, or some, some personal bent, really struggle, really struggle with uh, assurance that they really are Christians. Titus 1, starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The promises of God concerning eternal life, concerning salvation. So I want to look at that just a minute and, and, uh, and focus on that just a bit. First of all, the first thing that stands out to me is that he's talking about in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Now, who doesn't hope for eternal life? Who does? There might be a person who's, who's hoping for, you know, um, that, that they'll just cease to exist when they die or something. They want it all to end and, and they're... they're some kind of nihilist or something, I don't know. But, but most people hope for eternal life, right? In, in kind of the same way that, you know, my six-year-old is probably hoping there are still donuts left over in the fellowship hall, right? Is it, is it related to reality? No idea. <laughs> but I sure like what, you know, I'd like to have a donut, and so, so maybe there's one left over there, right? So we, we have this idea of hope that is, that is an unbiblical notion of hope. When, when we talk about hope of eternal life, this isn't, boy, oh boy, I hope there's a donut left. At the end of this whole life, I hope there's some kind of uh, e eternal life that goes on after this, but I don't really know, and who could say, and, and whatever. We're not talking about some hope that, that is against reality or that is not uh, sure or certain in some way. That's, that's, a, that's a kind of hope that is not being talked about here. When, when Paul talks about the hope of eternal life, he founds it upon the promise given by God. And so hope here doesn't mean I wish. It'd be really be, be great if. 
it's something that we haven't seen the reality of yet. But the promise has been made and we have a sure and certain expectation that it will be the case. It just hasn't happened yet. And so he talks about the hope of eternal life. He's talking about the hope of life after death, life with God after death. Ultimately, the resurrection. And this hope is not just some, boy, that'd be great if. It's rooted in the promise of God. God himself gave the promise to give eternal life. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Can you count on that? Can you count on the reality of an eternal life that God promised? Yes, it exists. Yes, it is a real. Yes, it is a real hope. It is a reality. So the hope of eternal life promised beforehand, it's made known in Paul's ministry, and even now it's, it's being made known as we preach the gospel. And of course, this eternal life is, is not just some hope, it's not just, it's not just an idea, but it's very specifically revealed in what Christ has accomplished. Therein lies the hope of eternal life. We're talking about the gospel, and the gospel is all about what Christ has done for us. We very often get confused about this, and so I'll say it again. The gospel is not about what we do. It is about what Christ has done for us that we never could have done ourselves. And the hope of eternal life is found in the gospel, is found in Christ. God never lies, and Jesus says that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out, but he will raise him up on the last day. There's where our hope of eternal life is. Or to put it another way, as John does in 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then a very, very provocative verse. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is God's desire that we know it. It is God's desire that we have eternal life in Christ and be aware and confident that we in fact do. Now, this is uh, the month of October, and this is, uh, uh, the end of this month is, um, is not only uh, the birthday of a dear one, but it's also the um, Reformation Day, where in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on, the, on that church door, and that, uh, in a manner of speaking, kicked off the Reformation. Well, <clears throat> one of the reasons that that was so important was that in the Middle Ages, during that time, in, in, in medieval Roman Catholicism, I'll say, security was intentionally withheld from the believer. They had the notion that if you were confident that you were in Christ and had eternal life, you would just live like the devil and do whatever you wanted. So, because they didn't want that to happen, 
they withheld assurance from the people and said, well, maybe, but you better, you better drive that treadmill. You need to do these things and then you can have assurance once you've arrived. But until that time, they thought assurance was a dangerous and a deadly thing. That's not biblical doctrine. That is not Christian doctrine. God would have us know that eternal life is found in the Son. And everyone who has come to the Son by faith has that eternal life. And He wants them to know that they have eternal life. That's a completely different motivator than medieval Roman Catholicism, which, which would have you seeking after that, that finish line of finally being right with God, finally at some point being justified. So you chase it, chase it, chase it. Biblical doctrine instead has it the other way around that you come to Christ purely by faith. You've got nothing to offer. You're, you're, a, you're a rank sinner. He draws you to himself. You trust in him. He declares you to be just before God. And he says, you have eternal life. Because eternal life is in the Son. And you're in the Son. You have it now, child of God. Now one who has been brought into the kingdom. One who has been brought into the family of God. One who has eternal life now. Live. Live from that hope. Live from that declaration of righteousness by God. Live from that knowledge and assurance that you have life. God has given you a new heart. God has given you a new name, a new position, a new identity. So live. And what does the Christian do? They live. They grow in obedience. They, they want to honor God. They want to make Him look good. They, they, they have a Father that they love. So far from living like the devil, which was the fear in Roman Catholicism. Instead, we, we love our Father, and we, we want Him to look good, and so we know we bear His name, and, and so we live a life that grows in obedience, out of gratitude for what He's done, because we love Him. So some of us suffer with a lack of assurance. That assurance is found by faith in Christ, and He would have us know it because of what he has done. And so the application is clear hope in Christ. Trust in him alone for eternal life. He has accomplished it, and he gives it to you through faith. Another way to say that is to rest in Christ. He has finished it. And that brings us naturally to the fourth problem, that we understand uh, that um, a person is made right with God by faith in Christ, that the gospel is what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's about what he has done. But we also know that a person who has come to Christ ought to live a certain way, ought to be sanctified. So we come fourthly to promises for sanctification. And of course, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There were a lot of passages that we could go to, but we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 5. This is a striking passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. 
he will surely do it. We're talking about sanctification. We're talking about, uh, maybe I should define what sanctification is. It's related to the word holy. Justification is when God declares us to be just before him, to be righteous before him, because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He has given us uh, his own righteousness of obedience, and those are ours by faith in Christ. Because we've been united with Christ, those are ours. That's justification. That happens in a moment. That's how a person becomes a Christian, comes into right standing with God. Well, sanctification is more a discussion of how we live the Christian life. Well, it's called sanctification because there is to be holiness and there is to be growth in holiness. And we all know that. A person comes to Christ and they, they're, they're to grow and uh, become more and more obedient to God. We, we understand these things. The question is how exactly that happens. The question is how do I do that or what in the world is going on? And so when we look at our passage here, it's striking to us that here we're talking about a person who has, has already been saved. They've been justified, and so they have what we call positional holiness, meaning they have been put into the position, in the category of one who is holy. They have positional holiness. But now what about the practical holiness? What about lifestyle that reflects the glory of God. So the person is positionally holy, but not yet practically holy. What's striking about this passage is what God says about it. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He doesn't say, Get with it, sanctifying yourself. Now, there are times when Paul speaks very boldly about sanctification, about, about our obedience, etc. But we dare not miss what he says here. God is at work doing it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Well, maybe this is just a prayer of Paul, a wish that Paul, Paul wishes that God would reach down and make some changes in our lives, but that's not really going to happen. Or that'd be nice if he did, but that's not what's going to happen. No. Look, look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God has committed himself to this process. He has committed himself to your sanctification, Christian. He is at work. We think of Paul's words in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will, means God's working in our will, and to do our actions for his good pleasure. God is at work there. God is at work mysteriously in ways we don't understand, in ways we can't identify, in ways we don't see and don't recognize at the time. But he himself is working to complete our sanctification. And God is faithful to keep his word. Having said he will do it, he will do it. So, what's the application here? Christian, you and I are not alone in the battle for our sanctification. Trust that the Lord is ultimately at work behind the scenes and behind our will even to see us conformed in lifestyle to the image of Christ. 
God is at work. And so, yes, you're not as sanctified as you'd like to be. I'm not either. I'm not as sanctified as you'd like me to be. <laughs> but God is at work. He is at work behind the scenes. You, you can see the things I do. And, and there are things that I do. We, we, we seek to obey God. We, we uh, do all these things, and yet we must remember that it is God who is at work both to will and to do in this regard. And so I can have a confidence that though I'm not as sanctified as I'd like to be, I can praise God that He's still at work. He is still sanctifying me, and He will do so. And the same is true for you. God made huge promises to Abraham. And much of the story of Abraham in Genesis is about his struggle to believe those promises. But God has made promises to us as well. He has promised to care for us. He has promised to supply the things that we really need. He's promised to give us genuine and profound comfort in the midst of even the worst kind of suffering that we can't imagine or we can't talk about. God is comforting us. He has promised a full and secure salvation for all those who draw near to Him through Christ. And He has even promised to undertake our own sanctification as He sovereignly works to conform us to the image of His Son. Those are some kind of promises. Those are impressive. Those are needful promises in my life and in your life. And they are very timely. I believe they're relevant for our lives. They're relevant for my life. God will keep His promises. So let's you and I believe Him. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, just some of the multitude of promises that are found in Your Word where You have committed Yourself to acting graciously and generously on behalf of Your children. And Father, I forget them all too often. I'm tempted to think quite contrary to these promises that I think instead that if I don't supply my needs, they will not be supplied. That if, if I don't uh, live the Christian life the way I ought to, or that I, I will somehow disrupt your plan. I will somehow throw a wrench into what you are doing. Father, this morning may I trust you to do what you have said you will do, even to give me comfort in the midst of the worst kinds of suffering and take that comfort to those around me who are suffering terribly, to take your provision to those around me who are in need of your provision. Help me to trust you that what Christ accomplished was enough. That I can rest in him because he has done it. And Father, even as I'm living this Christian life, may I remember and may we remember your promises that you are at work sanctifying us even now. That though I see failure and I see regret in my Christian life, though I see what is lacking, yet I must remember that you are at work. 
and that you will see me sanctified, that you are working in me to will and to do for your good pleasure even now. So, Father, may we take comfort in your promises. May we take hope in your promises. May we believe you when you speak. May we live in light of your promises as true, even as we've looked at Abraham and seen evidence in his life. We trust you. Father, help us to trust you even more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's going to be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.